Sometime around 2013, do you remember the year 2013? Who remembers the year 2013? It's a particularly a special year for you. That was the year I became an owner of a smartphone for the first time. If memory serves, it was the iPhone 5. That was the, I think that was the first one I got when I got on the on-ramp. And Apple is currently marketing the iPhone 14, so that tells you how far we've come uh, since that time. But at that time, it felt like I was coming to the party late. Like I said, I was on the iPhone uh, 5. But since joining the ranks of smartphone users, I have discovered a phenomenon that accompanies this kind of ownership. And maybe you know this one as well. What I wasn't aware of during my flip phone days on my little slide-out QWERTY keyboard, it's an annual event. It's an annual event in which uh, the manufacturers of the phone hold an unveiling event in which they unveil their new products for the year and they tell you why yours, which you bought a year ago, is total garbage (laughs) and isn't up to the task. And it's not just the device itself. My service plan also comes under this kind of scrutiny. We're in this type of thing right now with the phone. Presently, I'm on 4G. At least I'm, if I'm on the other side of First Avenue. When I'm on this side, I'm on 1G, as in, G. what happened to my service? <laughs> but when I'm operating in the other areas, I'm 4G. But the phone company is touting 5G and telling me how I need this. How, how could I go on living with such slow data and lagging service? I'm not quite sure. Upgrade the phone. Upgrade the service. Repeat. <laughs> Year in year out. And though my current plan seems plenty adequate, seems fine, dial phone number, phone rings, we talk for a while till it drops, then we call again. (laughs) I have this urge inside me, this sudden need of things I don't actually need. And that wells up in me. I suppose these efforts are particularly effective because they draw on a number of human frailties. Jimmy frailties, but human frailties, I suppose. They draw on our insecurities. They draw on feelings of inadequacy. They draw on our general sense of discontent, to name just a few. Of course, the device promises to us that in some way we'll be completed in those areas, that these devices and these service plans will change something about who we are, and they'll make us better. And all this gets us consumers to do exactly what we do best. What is that? Consume. (laughs) We're consumers after all. But could there be a better way? Is there a better way to live life than to constantly feel the marketing manipulations in our world and our culture? Our author here offers us a short answer, and that answer is yes. There is a better way. In fact, it's one that the author here, the Apostle Paul, has learned this better way And not only has Paul learned this, Paul wants us, the hearers today, but also the hearers back in the first century, to experience that kind of life. So as we look at this text and we ponder it, we have that in mind, that this is an opportunity for us as people to grow and to live into a better kind of life, the life that God wishes that you and I have. Now let me offer a little bit of context here as we ponder this text. The first thing is this, and we've shared this throughout uh, the series, this has been offered uh, previously. But you know that Paul's in prison here, all right? So as we read this, this text, and we hear these things, we constantly want to remind ourselves that the person who's writing this is presently incarcerated, and his future is uncertain. Remember back in chapter 1, 
Paul was uh, writing as though the very real possibility that his life could be forfeited, that his life could be taken from him because of the charges that were being brought forward. He was hoping to come and see them, and he was confident that he'd be able to come and see the Philippians again. But he was at a place where he was feeling the real pains and struggles of what it means to be someone who is held against their will with the possibility of not naming their own future. And so, of course, this person, this Paul, this apostle, uh, facing this serious uh, type of verdict that could come, is experiencing a range of emotion, as you can imagine. Despair just being one for sure that he must have felt. But also this sense that uh, this could be the end. This could be the end. At the same time, he's writing to an audience, and we've said this before as well, that's also facing persecution. So his heart is heavy as he's writing to a people that are also in a place of struggle, of fear, of despair themselves. And it seems that the experience of both author and audience has resulted in some kind of period of silence here in our text because he talks about their renewed interest. And so there's been a period of silence between the two and that, I imagine, could have probably weighed even more on the situation uh, for the apostle here. But look what he says in verse 10. He says, At last you renewed your concern for me. And the language there that's used, the word that's employed to talk about this renewing is the same type of words we use for something that comes into bloom. And so just imagine as you go, as here we now start marching into the grays, doldrums of the Seattle area as we get ready for winter in Seattle, right? Christmas in the Northwest. Remember that song? It's kind of painful to listen to. They always leave out the part where it's, you know, gray and raining. But we're getting ready for that season. But how glorious it will be when spring comes, right? And the colors reemerge and the, the flowers come to bloom. And that, those sensations that we have that require Claritin, right? So all those things that happen. But there's a live, live uh, things come alive and in bloom. And that's the language that's here. And so there's a sudden turn in here in our text that Paul is now, has the kind of enthusiasm and hopefulness that's restored because of what has happened. So at this particular moment, he holds on to his own misery, and he also holds the unfortunate lot of his friends. But also, he's holding this gift from this beloved community. Financial resources that would literally be life-giving at this point in history. Knowing, as we've shared before, that if you're in prison, your expenses have to be covered by your family and friends. There's no, there's no free meal here. And so these, these resources are going to cover that. So with that type of range of motion, holding on to all these different pieces, a bomb drops as this gift arrives. You might imagine that if you were to receive such a gift, that you would offer some kind of thanksgivings and pleasantries. Thank you cards would be filled out and mailed. There'd be a sharing of appreciation and gratitude for the gift. But Paul does something a little bit different than what we might imagine you would do upon receiving this kind of gift. And he does it in, in something that he says here. Instead of coming out with this huge, huge thank you, Paul says this in verse 11. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And he goes on here and talks about how, thanks for the gift, but I really didn't need it. That's such an odd way to think about this. Why would you say that? 
Why would the Apostle Paul come out and offer that to this audience here at the end of this letter, would say something in those type of terms? Why, why would he say that? Well, the line in verse 11 is pretty remarkable based on where he finds himself. He clearly is a person that has great need. Why would he say that he could be content in whatever circumstances? How could you be content in those circumstances that he finds himself uh, in this particular day as he writes this? Of course, he draws on categories that would have been familiar in their culture. Categories and themes that were held by some of his uh, contemporaries uh, in the philosophical schools, particularly the Cynics and the Stoics. But unlike his contemporary counterparts, Paul expresses his own self-sufficiency in saying that it wasn't born in and of the self. It wasn't born from rigorous study or attention to a certain way of living, but rather in verse 13 where he says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Have you heard that verse before? I've heard this over the years a a number of different times, and I think it's important for us to pause here that this verse oftentimes gets lifted out of the context. It's oftentimes put out there as the ultimate kind of achievement verse. We used to have, uh, uh, for confirmands back east, we'd have kids line up, you know, classes of 20, 30, even 40 kids at one point would be going through confirmation. And on the night they would read their faith statements, a number of the students would include in those faith statements, they would include a, a scripture passage that was important to them. And it wasn't unusual to find this particular verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, being recited by a student, which was quickly followed by the sense that I can go to the football field and I can become victorious and win the state championship. I can go to uh, golf or tennis or swim or whatever. You made the list. They had a whole list of these sports and whatever it was, I can do that and I can be victorious in it. I'm winning because it's Christ who strengthens me. Apparently, Christ did not strengthen people outside of our town. (laughs) People did it with academics. And people would nod their heads approvingly and say, yes, this is, that's exactly right. Our victories are because of Christ who strengthened me. Again, we move back to the context. And the context here for us happens on at least two fronts. You have the context of what Paul's experiencing at that present time. We've already gone over that. But there's also an immediate context for where this sentence shows up. If we lift it out of there, it can have a context of its own, which can be whatever you make it. But when you read it within the context of where it's written, it's better to read it without saying, I can do all things, but rather to understand the language here pushes to, I can do all these things. And the question then becomes, what are these things? We look back again at the text, we'll see that these things are already outlined by Paul in verse 12. He creates a list there of things that he's able to do. Whether it's in good times or bad times. Whether he's facing suffering or he's not facing suffering. Whatever the conditions might be, whatever the season might be, I can remain one who is self-sufficient because of the one who loves me and the one who has strengthened me. So thanks for your concern for the gift. Paul says that in verse 14. But the self-sufficiency I have learned to endure is this, that all circumstances in all those places, it comes from God's own generosity. That's the one who strengthens Paul here. And yes, this sounds all rather strange, particularly if you think about it as a thank you card. But here at the same time, 
it points to the grand paradox of the Christian faith. Gerald Hawthorne and Ralph Martin will describe that paradox in this way. The secret of Paul's independence was his dependence on Christ. His self-sufficiency came through being in vital union with the one who is all-sufficient. And that's the paradox there. But who is the one who strengthens Paul? We kind of say in kind of a general way, he must be talking about God, it's the Bible. That must be who Paul's talking about. But who's the one that he has in mind? He doesn't actually say, he just says, the one who strengthens me. But who is this one that he's imagining here? Well, at some point in history, uh, some copyist monk thought, I know what Paul's saying, and I'm going to fill it in for me. And if you're familiar with the King James Version, if you're familiar with that translation, and maybe you memorized this verse in that translation, you would say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That they've inserted Christ into the text that's not in the earliest manuscripts. That some monk said, this is, of course, who Paul has in mind, because Philippians is all about Jesus. So this must be the one that is talking about here. Well, they're not too far off here. Because in the New Testament, when this verse, uh, or this word is shown, this word for strengthens, appears, it shows up in places like Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It shows up in 1 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy 2 and 4. And when it does and shows up in those places, it always is associated with the activity of Jesus Christ. That the one who's strengthening in each of those places is Jesus. And so... Paul must have Christ in mind as he writes about this one who strengthens him. And isn't that a remarkable thing to know that the consistency of Paul throughout this book, to have the mind of the Messiah and a mind on the Messiah at the same time. With such a generous provision of strength in Christ, Paul experiences this self-sufficiency he has spoken about here in this section but we shouldn't make the mistake here to suppose that Paul's independence here translates to a kind of indifference to the gift that he's received uh, from these folks at Philippi. Paul is rather grateful for their generous kindness and the kindness that's shown to him by that church. According uh, to verses 15 and 16 of our text, this wasn't the only occasion that they gave a gift, a financial gift to him. There's a unique history of generosity between Paul and this church. And I think we here at, at Knox, we can, we can recognize a history of generosity in our own life as a church, our own history. Think about the many, many years uh, that we've been connected with mission partners, specific mission partners, where we said we've thrown our lot in with them and we said we're going to be generously giving financially to support them in that work. That's the same kind of connection that Paul has here with this church at Philippi, as you think over a unique relationship that exists there. But just consider here for a moment how remarkable the gift itself is to Paul. When he talks about these financial gifts and what they mean in God's larger economy. In verse 17 he says, I seek the profit that accumulates to your account. The language here, of course, reflects what we experience even today, particularly as we think about banking profits. When you think about dividends and interest, appreciating assets, those type of things, it's the same type of language back then as it would be today as we think about those. There's a return on investment here. It's a positive growth, and it's a promise that stretches all the way back 
to what Paul prays for this congregation in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. That your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what really matters so that the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless. Here it is, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. The word harvest that we have there in chapter 1, it's the word in Greek, karpos, the word fruit. And you'll see a note uh, in your text that actually draws you down to a footnote about that. But guess what in verse 17? The word prophet is the word fruit. Again. Paul here is seeing that this congregation has invested. They've invested in a fruit that will show up. The natural consequence of their participation, their faithful participation, and consequence in a good way. That there will be a one day when the greater return will be seen for their investment, for their participation. And that's going to be a glorious day. And Paul highlights that and the significance. He doesn't want them to miss that. Don't miss that, that when you're generous and you offer these type of expressions, it will pay dividends. One day, it will be a great harvest. In verse 18, he follows this up by saying, calling the gift itself a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. If you're a student of the Bible, uh, you have heard this kind of language before. How could you not hear this type of language or this type of reference here? It's all over the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 8, Exodus 29, Leviticus 1, Ezekiel 20. There are just a few of the places it shows up. But this financial gift here is represented as an act of worship. It's represented like the things that we think about sacrifices and burnt offerings of the Old Testament era. And how those things would be offered as gifts as things that be offered to God, that, that God might receive those things as true worship expressions, representing the heart of the giver. And that here Paul equates all of that to this financial gift that's given to support the ministry and mission of Christ around the world, and particularly in the life of, of Paul as he goes forward as an apostle. It's one of the, the great pieces of our calling in life to be a worshiping community. We think about our identity as Christians, that we are called to be a people of worship who worship God, the chief end of man. So here we find ourselves an expression, a faithful expression for how we might participate in that kind of worship. It's an opportunity for us not to live lives of discontent, but rather, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we make it our aim to be pleasing to God. That's how the author certainly felt. And that's certainly what he encourages as these folks here uh, in this Philippian church. They're participating in that work to be ones who live lives that please God, making this investment, offering true worship. So what do we do with all that? What do we do with all, this, all these pieces here? Well, there's a story of a guy in his mid-40s who goes out and buys a sports car. His girlfriend thinks he is having a midlife crisis. And he dismisses her saying, what does she know? She's only 18. <laughs> of course, we, uh, we joke and we, we poke fun at midlife crisis and people having them. But in real life, the crisis itself is born in a place of discontent. And stirred up in that discontent is misery that's connected uh, to the relationships that we have. 
And we end up breaking not only hearts, but we break lives. We fracture and shatter uh, our relationships and our trust with our community in the process. And truth be told, it's not just midlife when those crises hit. They can hit us at every age. Even when we're young, they can be places where we get hit by that sense of discontent. And we go in a ruinous fashion uh, towards trying to fix ourselves. But God has something else in mind for you and for me. And it's better than 5G, right? It's better than 5G. In fact, I'm going to say here that it's 2G. The 2G experience that God has for us. God's generosity is the first G. God wants that for us. For us to experience that true gift from the one who gives so graciously and so generously that we might be strengthened for the challenges that we might face. That we can find ourselves standing upright in the midst of a season that might be trying to beat us down. That God continues to provide those levels of provisions in a sense that there's a bright hope for tomorrow. That there's a future. At the same time, God wants you and me to have that second G. Be ones who operate in response to God's generous and gracious provision with our own grateful and generous response. That we, like the church in Philippi, don't hold back. But instead, that we offer tangible expressions of worship. Sometimes we get ourselves wrapped up in some sort of mental mind games where we imagine ourselves being a certain way but our conduct and our actions do not follow. It's very easy to have that happen in our generosity. To say, I'm a generous person, but then to give nothing. The sad part in that, and I think the part we know, the truth be told, is that we then, in fact, are not generous at all. And how great a promise we leave, what kind of money we leave on the table when we have the opportunity to offer that type of worship and that type of expression. To be a people who live lives modeled after Christ's own humility. That's what Philippians has been about. Who take on the very mind of Christ. To see the world and to see others. To see our community with the messianic mind. We've seen that throughout Philippians. And now we've seen people who receive generously and live generously. That also is very much part of what Paul has here in Philippians for us. To trust in our lives the one who generously gives to us in our own day. And trusting that God will fully satisfy every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Maybe the truth for us in our own generation today and every day of our lives. Amen.